Welcome to the Discourse Magazine podcast. This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, a new online journal of politics, economics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Dr. Richard Ebeling, BBNT Distinguished Professor of Ethics and Free Enterprise Leadership at the Citadel, joins Ben Klutze for today's podcast. Dr. Ebeling discusses his new book, For a New Liberalism, and the importance of living out the ideals of liberalism in our everyday lives. The audio, as well as the transcript for this conversation between Klutzi and Evelyn, has been slightly edited for clarity. We've been talking about liberalism and its values and how we can advance a liberal tradition in our modern society. We've touched on various themes such as individual liberty, toleration, mutual forbearance, pluralism, viewpoint diversity, and freedom of exchange. Today, we'll focus a bit more on the economic aspects of liberalism, and our guest is someone who has great depth and breadth of knowledge on this topic. In fact, he recently wrote a book about it titled For a New Liberalism, which came out in 2019. Our guest is Professor Richard Ebling. He is the BBNT Distinguished Professor of Ethics and Free Enterprise Leadership at Citadel. Prior to his appointment at the Citadel, Dr. Ebling was Professor of Economics at Northwood University in Midland, Michigan from 2009 to 2014. He served as president of the Foundation for Economic Education from 2003 to 2008. He was the Ludwig von Mises Professor of Economics at Hillsdale College from 1988 to 2003. He was assistant professor of economics at the University of Dallas in Texas from 84 to 88. He is the author of numerous articles and several books, including the one we'll be discussing today. Thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Ebling. Great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. I wanted to just dive into your book for a new liberalism. And the question I thought would be good to help kick things off is this. Your book is titled <laughs> A New Liberalism, uh, but it seems you're arguing for a return to the original liberalism. Am I, am I right in thinking that? Basically, yes. But uh, what, the reason I chose the title... Uh, it was actually recommended by a friend, was that it, it, it raises two issues. One is, is that uh, liberalism has somehow failed and uh, needs to be restored. And the other implication is there for new liberalism is that we are in, e- in an era that is somehow anti-liberal and liberalism needs to be brought back to replace the illiberal policies and directions of the society. And uh, what i basically are, are imply, am implying in the book uh, is that both are true. Modern American liberalism has failed. We have been increasingly moving in illiberal policy directions, both social, political, as well as economic. And that means that we need to rethink and, in my opinion, uh, restore a proper understanding of liberalism that has its roots in the 19th century. It's, uh, it's inspiration in the ideas of the 18th as well as the 19th century, but uh, to to go beyond them, to be more consistent, more relevant, and, and more inclusive. Right. You you were fortunate to study under Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig uh, Lachmann, and Israel Kirzner. How did they shape your thinking about liberalism and the way the world works? Ah, that is an interesting question. I would say they uh, and a very small handful of others uh, greatly molded me. Among the Austrian economists, clearly uh, in terms of the literature, two Austrian economists that had a most, the greatest impact on me was Ludwig von Mises and uh, Friedrich Hayek. What I had the opportunity to do was in the 1970s, I had summer fellowships twice at the Institute for Humane Studies when they were still headquartered in Menlo Park, California. And both of those summers, uh, Friedrich Hayek, he had just uh, a little earlier won the Nobel Prize in economics. In both of those summers, he was a senior fellow there as well. And uh, so for both of those summers, my office was nicely located, only one or two doors down from his. And uh, uh, I was in my mid-20s, and he's in his uh, like mid to late 70s. And when you're in your 20s, 70s seems old. And I figured, this guy, could, he might not show up tomorrow. He could die in his sleep. Actually, of course, Hayek lived until he was 92. Right. 
but, but anyway, so I forget, I have to go in and squeeze his brain for every little bit of knowledge. So in that sense, it's not like he was my teacher, but I had an opportunity for two summers to frequently, almost on a daily or every other day basis, to go in and spend an hour or so with him. And based upon the books of his that I had already read, uh, to ask questions, tease out ideas. And I would say that that he his, he has been a great uh, and outstanding influence on my way of looking at the world. I might also mention since... Uh, you know, it's always nice to know a person's observations of others. If you can have an image, an, an ideal in your head of what you think a Nobel laureate should be like, patient, knowledgeable, courteous, sharing, that was Hayek. I mean, you could walk into his office and he had his own things to do. He just won the Nobel Prize a year or two earlier and, you know, a lot of demands on his time. But he would sit down with you and, you know, even if he had heard a question from you that was a question he had heard a hundred times over the years, he treated your question as if he was hearing it for the first time and uh, deliberate. He also was very self-deprecating. He would be, because I would ask him, what about your, you know, battles with Keynes in the 1930s or your disputes with the socialists, you know, of the same period in the forties. And he would tell these little self-deprecating stories. Of, well, let, let me tell you about my, my next defeat. And that's the way he would express himself. But I should mention, he was a lifelong pipe smoker. And his doctor made him give up the pipe. But he needed his nicotine fix. So he took up sniffing snuff. And so you'd sit there in his office. And he would take out the snuff box and, you know, take the, you know, so inhale with the snuff up his nose. But then the, the, the little snuff particles would come dribbling down his mustache onto his shirt and his tie, and you'd be concentrating what he's saying, but your concentration was broken. Where's it going to dribble down next? I mean, you couldn't help staring at him. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but seriously, uh, he, he, he was a great mind who, who had great courtesy and patience and willingness to share his knowledge. Um, Lachman was, was uh, and Kersner, I had had a chance to study a bit with at New York University again in the 19. 19- late 1970s. And uh, uh, Lachman, too, was of that generation that he had been at the London School of Economics in the 1930s. He had already earned a master's degree at the University of Berlin under a famous uh, member of the German Historical School, Werner Zumbart. But in 1933, because Lachman was Jewish, he had to leave Germany, and he came to the London School of Economics and did another master's thesis under Hayek. So he, too, had a lot of these fascinating stories and, uh, and knowledge. And uh, you would go into his office, and uh, he would say, "Well, uh, Mr. Ebeling, uh, in, in these four words, uh, we can speak our mind." <laughs> way of talking, but uh, he, he was he, he was a delightful personality. And then Kersner, Kersner recently you know had his ninetieth birthday, and he's he's been like an icon in the revival of the austrian school having himself written his dissertation under mises at nyu but what stands out about kersner is that if there's a meaning to the phrase the economist's economist um that is kersner there's a, a deliberative scholarly seriousness about him that always attempts to be fair uh, and impartial while weighing all the arguments in both sides and and you you you're in his company for any period of time and you wish that if you could be a scholar, uh, you'd want to be his kind of scholar uh, b- because of the quality of his character and his personality. So, yeah, so all three of those uh, in their own different ways had a great influence on me. And and it seems as though the way you, you describe them personally, yes. it seems as though they, they sort of lived out liberalism personally. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, the patience, the deliberative nature, trying to weigh both sides, being tolerant of different views. What, what does liberal mean? Uh, of course, liberal can mean a political philosophy, uh, an economic concept of human relationships in the market arena. But liberal also has a sense of a state of mind, an attitude of openness, tolerance, uh, deliberative patience, uh, a willingness to weigh and consider, uh, not to Uh, without reason, uh, you know, set aside or condemn or disagree with, that any conclusion that is reached is based upon an intellectual discourse of fairness, 
and impartiality in the logic and the evidence of an argument. And if, if one thinks of liberalism or being liberal in that wider sense, psychologically, personally, culturally, uh, all three of them represented that. And I think you might have noted that uh, Ludwig von Mises was your largest uh, influence, which kind of makes sense given that you published a collection of some of his lost papers after uh, they resurfaced in a Soviet archive. What does Mises add to your thinking on liberalism and how we might conceptualize it more, more clearly? You know, sometimes it's hard to, to, to put into words your own thought processes of what has influenced your how. But what struck me early on when I was reading, as an econ major, obviously, an undergraduate, reading more and more of this, the Austrian literature, and particularly Mises, is that you see, what struck me was the interdisciplinary quality of the man. He wasn't just an economist. He was unbelievably knowledgeable about history, sociology, political philosophy. Uh, Remember, the old curriculum in, in before the First World, World War in a place like uh, the University of Vienna, is it, if you wanted to get become an economist, you did so, so through the faculty of law. So you became uh, a doctor of, of law, uh, as well as specializing in economics. You knew the ancient languages. You spoke several of the modern languages. You were expected to be basically a Renaissance man, and there's no doubt about it. There's only one instance in my experience or I ever saw this in work, that, oh, an environment of Renaissance people. And that was in Moscow during the end of the Soviet Union. But that would be a different topic to talk about, uh, to be in like a, a Moscow salon of what was then the intelligentsia of the end of the Soviet Union. That was like being at a salon in Paris uh, during the Enlightenment era. I, that's uh, with a little bit of exaggeration, but <laughs> that, that was sort of an environment that I... But Mises was of that character. What also always impressed me is that, is that the system, the, the systemizing way he's, he, he put ideas together. You know, a lot of people say that you now now he you know he he's just he's sort of like a formal logic that you start with man acts and then it becomes a closed system. There's a coherence to his thinking, a way of seeing the logical links all the way through. What always has struck me, which is obvious different than many readers, is that uh, if you read his memoirs and if you read carefully various passages in his works, he's neither closed-minded nor dogmatic. He goes out of his way to saying that each generation is building upon the knowledge that they're, they're left with by earlier generations. They are themselves only a way station on an unending intellectual journey. Uh, one as confident as one ever feels about one's own ideas and beliefs, one should always realize that there have been others before you who were equally, if not more confident, and were later shown to be often very wrong. So he is, his is not a closed-mindedness. It's quite the opposite of that. And, and then his, a lot of people, you know, some people call it intransigence, not suffering fools gladly, as the phrase goes. But you see that his consistency, of saying, okay, what do you say a socialist economy will be like, Mr. Socialist? How, how are you going to plan the economy? And he just says, look here, let's start with first principles. Without private property and a pricing system in a competitive arena, how will you undertake economic calculation? You can't. Or his criticisms of interventionism. There's a compelling persuasive logic in him. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything in him. I mean, who agrees with everything in any thinker that you're learning from? But, 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 but there's a pound. He's a system builder. But as I say, a system that is still open-ended, even though his rhetoric doesn't really sound. You have to understand people's times. I'm, I'm probably talking more about this than I should, and I apologize. But you have to understand oh, the, the old German intellectual community. Again, I'm talking about like before the First World War was different. People would attack each other. Scholars would attack each other in journals, personally. For example, the founder of the Austrian school was Karl Menger, and he was, ver- he was very critical of the German historical school. He believed that they discounted and, uh, you know, the importance of deductive reasoning in, in social analysis. And 
the head of the German historical school at that time, one of the heads was Gustav Schmoller. He's a big name in Berlin. And he wrote this terrible critical review of Menger's methodology book in, uh, that was published in 1883. So how does Menger respond? He writes a little book uh, called The Errors of the, of the German Historical School in the form of letters to a friend. Unfortunately, it's not in English, but I can read German. Um, anyway, so, but, so you read, so, and he's like, he's explaining all the problems with Schmoller and the German Historical School. And at some point he says, but after all, how can you reason with someone like Schmoller? After all, he has a mind of primordial ooze. Now, who would say? <laughs> I mean, it's not, yeah, because I can assure you that the, the the harshness of the language was equally against him from some of these German people. Uh, and then there was this professor at the University of Vienna in the 1920s and 30s named Otmar Spahn. And he had this philosophy of universalism, which was basically a proto-fascist thing you know, the collectives as opposed to individuals, both political, sociological, methodological. And he, he would write these things. And again, very little of his stuff is in English, but he would write these things and he's saying, in the Teutonic world, who even says the Teutonic world? In the Teutonic world, marginal utility, marginal utility theory has been crushed. <laughs> and then in another book on methodology, he refers to methodological individualism as the dragon seed of evil. <laughs> I can see the, this is like a learned guy. I mean, yeah. the people are listening to. But then, you know, Mises, he has this collection of methodological essays, which came out in 1933 called Epistemological Problems of Economics. So in the introduction, he says, many people of the German historical school are criticized in the following essays, including Otmar Spahn, who has been completely refuted. So you have Spahn saying, you're rejected. Mises saying, you're refuted. I mean, <laughs> this is just how they talk back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a different scholarly style that today we sort of wince at. Like, what? And they never use footnotes. You, you had mentioned that, you know, Hayek and others right. got, you know, studied economics under sort of law departments right. and so on, which seemed to, to indicate that there was a lot of interdisciplinary study, studying going on. Yes. Do you think that there's been a lot more siloing in the modern era and, and so sort of leading to some of the liberalism that, that we see and the challenges in how academics from different disciplines talk to each other? Yes. I, you know, Hayek himself has an essay called The Dilemma of Specialization. I believe it appears in his Studies in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics from 1967. And, and he points out that obviously as, as sciences and disciplines develop, you cannot avoid degrees of specialization because how can anybody know everything, you know? But, but he says is that, but, but the focus on narrow areas has, has, has made too many scholars have blinders on. These are my words, not his. It's a long time since I read the essay. But it, in just, it seemed to me that he was saying that people have blinders on, that, that you're just narrowly an economist and don't understand the institutional, political, and social milieu in which economic forces play out or you're just a political scientist uh, or an historian and you, you know little or nothing of, of what a, a practicing economist turn, takes for granted in terms of, quote, how markets work and how government policies may play out. So, so, so the free market economist will feel, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but he's implying that naively the political scientist or the historian thinks, well, government could just do this and successfully have no negative unintended consequences. And so I, I believe that, 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 that forms of specialization have resulted in us not understanding that, 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 that the social world that we all study uh, is of one tapestry. And we, we may be looking at different parts of the tapestry, but they're so interrelated that you have to be able to, at the same time as getting your own special knowledge, also step back and have a sense of the complementarity of how it all fits together. Otherwise, you're going to miss things to even successfully do your own area of research. That's really interesting. In the book, you, you argue that liberalism transformed into political paternalism in the early part of the 20th century. How, how did this happen? Okay, th th this is very controversial because it sort of prevents you from not seeming to take sides, which I do have a side. Uh, there would be no liber liberalism today or the liberties that we take for granted 
if there not, had not been, I'm taking it as an historical fact now, not whether philosophers find it cogently persuasive, but the tradition of natural rights, that it is a self-evident truth that certain individuals by inherently as a human being, either due to their nature as their reason can understand or God-given as many of the older philosophers believed, uh, that are inalienable, that may be not taken away from you, may not be violated, and that the purpose of society and its institutions is to design an arena in which each person can be secure in that liberty against the aggressions of others, uh, while having as much latitude of his natural rights and its practice as possible. For instance, why did slavery end anywhere in the in the modern world. I'm not saying the only place, but a major focal point was Great Britain in the second half of the 18th century, the 1700s. People like uh, Thomas Clarkson, William Wilberforce, and others. Uh, they were uh, George Thompson. Uh, th- th- these, are, these people were deeply moved by, by, by the cruelty uh, and the callousness and the inhumanity uh, of the slavery that they had, they were seeing in their own time, African slavery. And they're trying to persuade their fellow men that this institution is not just inefficient, costly, they make those arguments too, but at the heart of it, it's a moral issue. It is inherently wrong for one human being to presume to conquer and enslave and own another. Because each human being in themselves has an inherent right to his own life and his liberty. He owns himself. He is his own property, not to be made a tool under force to the whims and wishes of another. Uh, that, that is a powerful argument. And it moved people. It persuaded people. Uh, and again, just as an historical fact, it may, not, it may be that a lot of libertarians and classical liberals have moved away from having religious views. We're making a historical fact. They were moved by their Christian faith. This is an abomination in the eyes of God. God gives you your freedom. No man may take it away. This is natural within you. And that was a, a great force for, 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 for the emerging liberation of, of human beings from various forms of tyranny whether it be out-and-out slavery, which did not happen overnight, but ended through an act of parliament in England in 1833, inspired others, the abolitionist movement in America through the terrible civil war that we had, finally the end of slavery in the Western world. Uh, The last slave country in, in the Americas was Brazil. That ended in 1889. The then Empress of Brazil signed it away through an act. This is what moved people. That the idea that you should have certain civil liberties, uh, that you should have a certain right to vote, uh, that people should have freedom of exchange and association and occupation. Uh, What Adam Smith talks about, a system of natural liberty. Uh, His teacher, Francis Hutchison, from whom he got many of his ideas, uh, basically talked about the natural liberty and the natural rights of people. And, And that is what gave us the foundations of the human freedoms that we take for granted, because these are viewed as universal for all men everywhere in all times, regardless of who they are and what they look like. Now, what began to change? And again, I'm talking too long and I apologize. And this again is controversial among political philosophers, utilitarianism. Now, I'm an economist. I use utilitarian arguments all the time. It works. It doesn't work. It, It makes the betterment of people in society as a whole. But there was a shift where you're concerned about what seems to be useful and what seems to help more people as opposed to less people. And now legislation becomes not a matter of, is it consistent with people's rights or does it have to be changed because it violates people's natural rights to what is an efficiency? What is more optimal? What, what seems to have more benefits than costs? So that undermined, and I'm, I'm trying to use undermine not in a normative sense, just as a statement, because it did undermine it, this idea of this fervent belief of the natural liberty of a person to himself that may not be violated. So now it's basically more utilitarian efficiency arguments. Then combined with that is the emerging historical relativism 
of, of Germany and of which Marxism is a form. Each epoch has its own institutions and its own notions of human relationships and ethics and morality. And the morality of, to, of today is not the same morality of yesterday. Uh, as, as the German historical school people said in, in the middle and late 19th century, the laws of economics that applied in the Great Britain of the 1830s and 1840s, when there was the push for the free trade uh, establishment, is not the same laws of economics that apply in the Germany of the 1880s and 1890s that say that it is necessary to have protectionism or welfare redistributed uh, policies, which Bismarck was introducing under their influence. So, so all of this undermines it. So, so again, I apologize, you know, because it's a story. It's a story. Sure. Very few American universities offered PhDs in the second half of the 19th century, virtually none, one or two, I think. So if you wanted to be a scholar in any of these fields and to have a capstone of your academic career before moving on to what you were going to do, you had to go to Europe. Some people went to Cambridge and Oxford. Others went to the University of Paris or the Sorbonne. A lot of American scholars, economists, political scientists, sociologists, historians, they went to the German universities. Was not Germany the land of the philosophers and the poets, the scientists, uh, the romanticists, of course. Germany represented culture. So they went to these universities, and who, and who, particularly the social scientists in these various fields, where do they study? With whom do they study? At these universities with the professors of the German historical school, who were basically socialists without Marx. They want state socialism. You don't throw the baby out the bathwater. You don't kill businessmen. You don't take away private property. But you have to have an enlightened government that is guided by opportunism and pragmatism. That's their words in their books and articles. A rational government operates on the basis of pragmatism and opportunism. If it seems appropriate to regulate an industry today, you regulate it. If it seems appropriate to own a, an industry by the government tomorrow, you do it. If the reverse happens, well, that changes for a period of time. All of these American scholars, including the founders of the American Economic Association, come back to the United States and they become young professors. Some of them serve in the Wilson administration, many of them when they're older or their students serve in the Franklin Roosevelt New Deal administration of the 1930s. And they imbue an entire philosophy that there needs to be not that type of Bismarckian, you know, you know, militarism that the Germans had, but a new liberalism, an enlightened liberalism that isn't stuck in an invariant notion of negative liberty merely the protection of rights. There has to be a positive liberalism that realizes that how can you be free if you're poor? Because if you're poor, you have no power to achieve your goals. So a positive liberalism requires that there be an equal opportunity of all through redistribution of wealth. Because is it not fair? Is it not, are we not all part of the same community family? Do we not all collectively benefit from this? And in fact, Richard Ely, who was a longtime professor at the University of Wisconsin, was one of the major founders of the American Economic Association, wrote several books on this. He said, we are looking to a future where enlightened experts will guide others in society, particularly in the business community that will happily operate with them to move on and bring about reforms, because in bringing about social justice, we are doing God's work. This is their mental attitude. And that is basically how liberalism and the undermining of the older notions of a rights-based notion of liberalism uh, got, got, got transformed looking over the 19th and early of the 20th century. Now, obviously, this is a long story, which I've already talked too much about, but, but explains in a way what happened. So that today in America, what is liberalism? Liberalism was for beginning, particularly with the Roosevelt administration, Laissez-faire government, not laissez-faire markets and people, but laissez-faire government. Government should not be constrained by constitutional uh, limits, which Wilson had been pushing earlier. But government should be able to redistribute wealth, regulate as it's considered necessary, becomes the, the political paternalist serving the people. Uh, well, I'll just leave it there. So the aspect of liberalism that has to do with, you know, voluntary exchange right. uh, and, and, and so on, the economics of it, 
or someone might call it market liberalism. Uh-huh. What, what, what are some of the misconceptions that people have about that? Part of the misconception is, is a failure to appreciate a set of ideas that require, uh, admittedly, a degree of abstraction. The, the type of thinking that Adam Smith offered us in The Wealth of Nations, uh, in what has become you know, this phrase from a passage in his book, The Invisible Hand, the idea that in a certain institutional setting, where we recognize that individuals have certain rights to their life, their liberty, their honestly acquired property, in which human association is based upon voluntary agreement and mutual consent. And there has emerged degrees of interdependency through a, a forms of division of labor. Human beings who cannot, who, who inescapably are self-interested. In other words, you are a person. You look at the world through your own eyes. You, 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 you act in ways guided by your values. Given that self-interested behavior is inescapable, and I'll add a footnote about that in a moment, then what happens here? No longer can people gain what they want at the expense of their others through plunder, conquest, enslavement. Now, if you have what I want, and I can't kill you, I can't steal from you, I can't defraud you, what am I left with? How can I apply my knowledge, skills, ability, and imagination to devise the offering to you of a product or a service that you will find attractive enough to take it in exchange from me for what you have that I desire and value more highly in turn than what I would have to give you in trade? Suddenly, you have now harnessed self-interest to a properly understood sense of the common good. In other words a positive some game of mutual improvement and enhancement of life. That core concept is profoundly important to the liberal vision of society. Society is no longer a conflict of class, of race, of, of, of predators. We can imagine a world in which people live peacefully together, respecting each other's rights to their lives and their liberty with tolerance And at the same time, to advance my interests requires me to inescapably improve yours in the process. So we are in a society of mutual prosperity through harmony uh, and interdependence. Or as Mises says in a a passage in in his treatise, Human Action, uh, in the market, people uh, compete, uh, cooperate through competition and cooperate through competition, compete through cooperation and, and cooperate through competition. It's mutual. And and that is the great lesson uh, to the market economy. Just recently, heads of major corporations connected with social media uh, were called before Congress just the other day. And they were put over the grills. They're big, they're powerful, they have huge revenues and wealth. The fact is, as long as a market is open and unrestricted, not one dime, not one penny, that someone such as Jeff, Jeff Bezos has made or, or Zuckerberg has made is due to plunder, theft, exploitation, or oppression. If I buy a book from Amazon or if I stream a movie from Amazon, it's because I value the, 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 what the book can offer to me and the speed of getting it than not having it or buying it from another. If I stream a movie, I just streamed a couple of movies, right? Not just my, you know, the extra fee that you pay if it's not, you know, Amazon Prime. Uh, why did I do so? It's because I valued the, the, the entertainment and the information of the movies more than the price tag. Now, $2.99 from me, $3.99 from someone else, the price of the book uh, to be shipped to me from another person adds up to the hundreds of millions of dollars that that. that a company like Amazon makes, or Zuckerberg from any advertising by offering his social media services. Not one dime, as long as they've not been protected by the government from competition or received a subsidy or, or, or a supportive regulation from the government, has been earned dishonestly. Bigness is not wrong in the marketplace as long as it's earned on a free market. And the result is what has cumulatively occurred? Adam Smith's lesson. Each has had to apply their knowledge, skills, and ability to serve their fellow men 
to improve their own circumstances. Now, I said I wanted to add a footnote. When Adam Smith and every reasonable economist since him, when they've said that men are guided by self-interest, they have never meant, they have never meant he only cares about material, greedy acquisition. No. From the time of Adam Smith, it's when I said whatever is of personal interest to you, family, friends, neighbors, causes, but you cannot escape the fact that each individual looks and lives, looks out at the world and lives his life through his own eyes and his own mind, and therefore evaluates what he considers good, right, just, important, and valuable. And that's all that economists since Adam Smith have ever meant by, by self-interest. Not this, this imagery of greed with the most negative, but the idea of each acting and what is of value to them, most broadly defined, and achieving it through the volunteerism of, of, of civil association without force in society. To me, the, the morality of that, the ethics of that, the profound, I can't hit you over the head, nor can you bind me to be your bondsman. Mutual respect, dignity, honesty. This is the foundation of the market. Uh, and what makes it more moral and profoundly important as a social system than anything else man has ever stumbled upon. Now, from your book, um, I'm reading from uh, page 369. You said, free market liberals have debated amongst, amongst themselves about what other roles and duties even a government meant to primarily secure rather than violate liberty should or should not undertake. Uh, this has usually concerned government spending and involvement in education, infrastructure, expenditures, specific regulatory responsibilities, and certain minimal welfare-related expenditures. And, and, and so my question to you is, it, it seems like that is a healthy debate, right? I mean, this is part of a broad liberal tradition. Some people will want a bit more of a robust regulatory apparatus. Some would want less. Some would want more... Uh, sort of welfare cushion. Um, others would want uh, a little bit less. Isn't this all part of this great liberal tradition? Am I am I wrong there? No, historically it has been. Uh, in the 19th century, the, the liberals of that time uh, did have uh, discussions, debates, and arguments over what are the minimal legitimate functions of government. Uh, obviously, every liberal would say that it's obviously the protection of the honest person's person and property, the obligation to fulfill contract. Uh, that would be considered the minimalist laissez-faire state, the, the phrase usually used pejoratively, the night watchman state. Uh, but it is true that in the 19th century, liberals did argue for, for a functioning free society, a self-governing society, and self-governing meant two things for the, those, that generation of liberals. The self-governing individual who has the liberty to guide and direct and plan and pursue his own life in free association with others. And the self-governing of political participation, representative government, democracy. And it was felt that how can a person uh, make an informed set of decisions in their social interactions with others and in the arena of participating in representative government, if they don't have a certain amount of minimal literacy. So the issue was uh, how much uh, education should be covered or funded by, by the state or the government. Most of them were in agreement with certain minimal fundings of these things. But I would say that, that, that the balanced one about this can be found in John Stuart Mill, who's often considered a, a waffler on a lot of social redistributive issues. But in his principles of political economy, he makes it clear that while he thinks that it is necessary and desirable for there to be a certain minimal amount of government funding for uh, sort of a, a floor base of literacy among the population, he goes out of his way to emphasize that that in should no way uh, make the claim that government should have a monopoly on these things that there should not be any attempt for the government to prohibit or uh, make it financially difficult for, for competition in education. In fact, in competition in any of these social services that some of those liberals might have felt is necessary for the government to provide. 
the gist of the argument always is not whether government should do this, but is there a reason to think that the market could not? Now, the, the British had had the poor laws going back to Queen Elizabeth I, which were basically their version of a form of a welfare state, you know, for the unemployed and the poor. Uh, the, the, the money was collected from landowners. It was distributed through the Church of England because that was an official church, the parishes. But that began to be reformed in two directions in the 19th century. One was felt to be a system that created intergenerational dependency. Henry Fawcett, who is one of the last of the great classical economists, has a book from 1874, 72, called Pauperism, Its Causes and Cures. And uh, pauperism is dependence beyond the state for, for, for relief. He says in there that, that hit the studies, you know, the, the parliamentary studies show that there was now an intergenerational dependency. Uh, you know, grandparents had gotten on this, then their children got on, then the, grand, then the grandchildren got on. Now, three generations of interdependency with negative effects. First of all, the more children you had, the bigger the welfare payment. Okay. Second of all, if you had children out of wedlock, your payment was even more because then you had no man around to even give any kind of support. So, so Fawcett says, notice here uh, that, that, that this now creates a perverse incentive for children of people who cannot support them. And of course, you know, people were expected to marry back then. I know it's a shocking idea. Um, you know, back then, when people referred to wedding nights, it was actually meant to mean something. I know times change, but anyway, uh, <laughs> but anyway. So he says that he, he says that uh, that this also generate immorality, by which he means children out of wedlock. Uh, and he also points out a psychology that after several generations, those on the poor law assistance now come to view it as an entitlement, as much as a legitimate right of income as if they had earned it on a job for services rendered. Now notice, what are the criticisms that have been made often of the welfare system in the United States? Breakdown of the family, uh, children out of wedlock, uh, entitlement mentality. Well, like causes bring about like effects. But, but anyway, the, the, these then worked on, well, how can we reform this? And so they were made reforms to, to, to change that welfare system. But at the same time, there emerged the, the friendly societies. Uh, this has gone down a memory hole, unfortunately. But this was the 19th century liberal answer to social problems of, of what today we call welfare. They were formed as, as associations, first to give people a sort of mutual assistance for death benefits, right? The breadwinner dies, how are you going to bury them? Then it spread out to, to unemployment insurance. You paid in for that. Uh, health ins- Forms of health insurance. You, you, you were helped to put money aside, a lot, lot like a private, you know, like savings association to, to put money aside for a nest egg, to, to buy a house, uh, 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 retirement pensions. All of these were voluntary associations that by the end of the 19th century, according to these records, two thirds to three quarters of the entire British population were covered by various forms of these friendly societies, voluntary associations for social welfare needs and desires. And you say, well, two thirds. What about the poor? The poor were probably those that, that last one quarter. No. If you look at the records, historians have shown the vo- largest proportion of members were from the lowest income or social groups. Why? Because they were the ones who were on such modest income. They knew the importance of taking out the pennies for their insurance to be secure from the uncertainties and the dangers of life. So in fact, it was used most broadly by those in the lower income brackets. Now, what ended all that? Well, what ended that was the first welfare programs in Britain, because now the government was started offering these things for free. Well, how do you compete against free when the others are based upon the, the, the subscription premiums and donations from the friendly society members? So basically the government by providing it for free priced it out of the market. But, 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 these, were the, but these were the debates. Okay, what about schooling? Do we need to have government schooling? If so, but should it be a monopoly or should the market be allowed to function? What about welfare dependency? Does the state have to do it? Are there private avenues? In fact, William Stanley Jevons, one of famous late 19th century economists, 
because uh, he's one of the first formulators of the marginal utility concept, was an advocate of government welfare. Or was he saying, oh, the private charity is too you know, small, people are too selfish, they won't give? No, if you read him, he's saying private charity is too big. It's making people too lazy. We have to limit private charity because of its over-generosity and use the government to only give the welfare that people could minimally need to, 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 to not you know, prevent them from wanting to work. I mean, it's, it's such a change in attitudes. But, but those are the terms of, of the debate. And I would just say about education, there, there was uh, an economic historian named Edwin West, E.G. West, a Canadian. And he once wrote a book called Education and the State, covering this period of Britain in the late 18th and early 19th century. And he pointed out that before compulsory education, public schooling, two thirds to three quarters of the entire British population was made illiterate during those decades of the industrial revolution through, through uh, church schools, uh, other philanthropic enterprises uh, for pay. Uh, and, and that generated what was called the penny press. Because so many people were now reading, they wanted newspapers. So cheap newspapers now multiplied on the market because of the huge readership. So, so those were the debates, but the presumption was, why do you think the market wouldn't work rather than the current default position? Well, the government has to, what makes you think the market can? Right. You, you had mentioned earlier that, you know, we're, we're trending towards illiberalism or anti, uh, or, or sort of towards an anti-liberal climate. And, you know, one might push back and say, but we are freer now, right? I mean, if you, if you look at, uh, you know, minorities and, and people with disabilities and so on, you, you can see that life has gotten better overall. What's, what's your response to that? Life has gotten better. The, the question is, what has been the prime engine for this betterment? Uh, we are all living higher standards of living. Uh, for all of the, 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 the criticisms and the arguments about inequality of income, and obviously not everybody has the same income. There are people who are very aware, some who are far more modest. But I know it's called a cliche, but a rising tide does lift all boats. And if you compare the poorest people in the United States today with millions, tens, if not hundreds of millions of people in other parts of the world, or what Americans took for granted 100 years ago as prosperity, okay, no one in America is, is poor. Does that mean that everybody, I mean, don't people fall bet between the cracks? That's, I'm talking a generalized statement here. Whether you're rich, middle income, or, or, or quote, poor, quote, by American standards, your standards of living are immense. The amenities, the conveniences, who, I know I'm being rhetorical, a rhetorical question, who doesn't have a cell phone? Who doesn't have a refrigerator? Who doesn't have some kind of a car? Who doesn't have, 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 have a television? Who, who, who doesn't have any of these amenities? Everybody has these things that were considered luxuries. 75 years ago, non-existent 100 years ago. Now, the, the other issues come up about civil rights, civil liberties, uh, uh, and, and various things. Uh, this is a very controversial point, and I obviously can only speak for myself, okay? Uh, because there are debates and differences of opinion among liberals on this, and by which I mean the broadly defined classical liberals. I, I would argue that to, to a great extent, to the extent that these improvements have come in to, the, to, to those who were denied such opportunities and sometimes in abusive ways in the past, it has been due to the spirit and the ideal of that older liberalism. What do you mean a person can't drink from the same water fountain? What do you mean that a person can't apply to the same state university? What do you mean one person can't marry another of their choice because there are laws against interracial marriage? What do you mean that someone can't enter a profession or an occupation because of rules and rigidities or can't choose to buy a house that another is willing to sell them in a certain neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera? All of those were, were abominations and, and eliminating them are all part of, of the spirit of, of the older, older liberalism that abolished slavery insisted upon an equality of the rule of law and the same basic rights before the law. But the, the problem came is that in the second half of the 20th century, when people became intensely 
concerned about many of these. There was this blending of, of both the older liberalism that I'm talking about and this newer socialism in which it was expected for the state to do paternalistic things. And, and uh, I believe that most of these improvements would have occurred, maybe not at the same moment, uh, maybe not if helping and affecting everyone simultaneously if the paternalistic liberalism had not been at work. But I believe that all of these improvements would have still occurred and would have occurred in a healthier environment politically and culturally because it would have occurred on a more voluntaristic and free associative basis. And without the antagonisms and resistances and resentments of, of, of special favors for some after wanting to abolish favors for anybody and, 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 and redistributions of wealth, that some people say, I have had nothing to do with this. Why should I have to pay for it? Uh, I, I believe that that all of these improvements would have occurred in, in basically in, in various forms in a certain sequence without the antagonisms and, and controversies that that, the, that 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 the modern American liberalism has superimposed on these attempts to to assure liberty and justice for all in society. But I accept the fact that I'm I'm holding a very controversial view but I believe it is a view that is consistent with a rightly understood notion of the freedom and dignity uh, and the ethics of human freedom. And you'd mentioned um, uh, ahead of this recording that some of the, the liberals in the, in the classical tradition didn't write as much about these injustices and, you know, discriminations right. enough, which was a, a, a substantial mistake. I, yes. If you read the attempt to restore the tradition of individual liberty, liberalism rightly understood in the post-World War II period, the revival of it, much of which have had authors who, who have been labeled as conservative, but given these waffly labels, in their essence were more classical liberal than some notion of conservative. Uh, the, you, you find them defending individual liberty. You find them defending uh, equal rights, constitutional rights. You find them defending a limited government, the freedom of free association in the marketplace. But what's, what has struck me, and I'm not saying I've read all of them from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, for example, um, but, I, but I've read quite a few, I think, is there's this huge hole in their analysis that you have the 1940s, 50s, and 60s of the civil rights movement that is concerned with injustices particularly in the, in, the, in the formal segregation laws of the South. There's no, I mean, how can you, you know, talk about liberty and, 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 and in the face of that? And what strikes me is that virtually none of them, you say virtually because a few did, virtually none of them have chapters or discussions of, of, of the problems of an equality of rights for those who are being denied them in the South. Again, as I mentioned when we were talking before we started this, you know, it's not like I read biographies of each and one of them where some biographers, you know, drawing upon their letters. So I don't know what they wrote in their letters, but their published works to the extent that I've read them from that period. I have no indication, uh, sense, uh, reading between the lines that for all intents and purposes, any of them were racists or segregationists. But for some reason, they have this blind spot of not realizing that just as the liberals of the first half of the 19th century took up the cause of black, sla black slavery and insisted upon ending it and having an equality of all men before the law and equal justice before the law. And the fervency, people like William Lloyd Garrison and others. And, and then, but none of, and should they have not seen that the same, same fervency, if you believe in liberty, should have put you on, on, the, on, on a path to defend, advocate, insist upon the abolition of those segregation laws with the same fervency and admonition of, of moral justice as the anti-slavers in the first half of the 19th century. And the fact is, is that the, the, the classical liberal slash individualist free market oriented conservatives they don't do that, at least in the books. Of, and like I said, I've tried to read a lot of them. That's the literature that first influenced me when I was 
gotten interested in this in my teens and the 20s and the 1960s and 1970s. That was the literature then. So I believe that the classical liberals lost an opportunity to be part of the debate over what civil rights mean. What, what, what is the role of government to assist or not to assist, to intervene or not intervene, to give favors and privileges or not to give favors and privileges in one direction or another? And, and we, the liberals lost that, that opportunity. And I think that, that it has put us partly in the dilemma that we are. Now, as we, uh, you know, moving towards the, the end of the conversation here, uh, there are some who are listening who are academics, public intellectuals, right. and so on. What, what advice or thoughts do you have for sort of fostering conversations uh, towards a more new liberalism, if you will, in the, both in the classroom and, and beyond? Well, you know, the... the you know, um, I was influenced by a man named Leonard Reed. He was the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE. Uh, maybe many of the people listening to this uh, remember reading a magazine called The Freeman. That was the foundation's magazine for many decades. And, uh, and Leonard Reed emphasized the thing, you want to change the world, don't we all? Well, if you ask yourself over all the people in the world over whom you have the most influence, who is it? Yourself. So changing the world begins with a process of self-improvement, becoming informed about these ideas, knowledgeable about these ideas, articulate about these ideas. Reed said that people have different you know, pressures of their life. Some you know, have families, they have time-consuming professions. So each, each must decide to use the language of the economist at the margin, how much they can afford and feel intensely enough to become more self-educated about the ideas and the implications of liberty. But we're not going to change the world unless there is a sufficient number of people who take on that self-improvement responsibility. Then, then he, he argues is that, uh, well, l- let me use an analogy. Uh, I went to a fee seminar when I was in my 20s. Uh, when it was headquartered in uh, Irvington, New York. And it was a great week. Among the others lecturing that week was Henry Hazlitt, the famous free market journalist, economics in one lesson. But I remember only one lecture from the whole week, and it was a lecture by Leonard Reed. It was a classroom. And uh, he had the lights turned off, and he had an electric candle with like a dimmer switch on it. And Leonard Reed now went from total black darkness to turning the dimmer switch to like this little glimmer of light from the electric candle. And he says, notice that in this darkness, all of our eyes are attracted to this little glimmer of light. And then he turns the dimmer switch more and more. And he says, now notice that, that, that you can see me in part of the desk in front of me. Turns it more. He says, well, now, now we can see people in the front row. And then finally he keeps turning on and he says, now look, this little electric candle has practically lit up the whole room with just a few bits of darkness in the corners. This is what each of us can be a light of liberty, who through self-improvement of understanding what freedom means, appreciating why it's important, learning to, to be persuasive and articulate in our corners of society, we will illuminate ourselves and attract another one to become a light of liberty and another light of liberty and another light of liberty until the forces against freedom have been pushed back to a few dark corners of the society. Now, he, he, I, that's a profound imagery, at least it, it has always seemed that way to me, a metaphor, if you will. But, but the, the other thing he then said, but how do you persuade people? Patience, respect, tolerance, and politeness. Nobody likes to be in your face. You're wrong. You're a jerk. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I certainly don't like it. My wife gets away with it a little bit, but that's voluntary servitude, I guess. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, n- none of us like that, right? So, so, so the way that you try to, and when? Well, there's no silver bullet. Some people are in a conversation with relatives over a dinner table. Uh, if people st- still sit together over a dinner table or a restaurant, uh, a place of work, um, having a cup of coffee, and maybe a subject comes up and in a non-offensive or pushy way, put your two cents in. Maybe you write a letter to the editor. 
Uh, maybe you, uh, you know, decide to do it today. We would talk about, you know, social media and you just spread the word this way in every corner that you have. And eventually you reach more and more people and you think, Oh yeah. How does that work? Well, can I tell a funny story that is a true story about myself? If I may, sure. I was in graduate school. I was taking those courses with Lockman and Kersner at NYU, but I was making some extra money teaching in New Jersey at Rutgers, the Newark campus. And, uh, but I was living in Queens, New York. So I would take this, what they call the tubes, the subway from New Jersey to lower Manhattan under the Hudson River. And I would then have to change to the New York subway system. Well, since I had to change anyway and pay a different fare, right above the station, there was like a little, you know, uh, uh, grocery store uh, uh, shop. And I would stop there sometimes, you know, to get food and then go on my way home. So I'm, I'm at this store and I'm in the checkout counter. This is an absolutely true story. This woman is behind me on the checkout and she's staring at me and staring at me. And finally she says, aren't you Richard Ebeling? Yes. You teach at Rutgers, don't you? Uh, Yeah. You have ruined my marriage. Everybody is now looking at me. I'm thinking in my head, help, help, help. And she repeats herself. You ruined my marriage. And then she says, my husband took your class at Rutgers. He pointed me out to you to me at one day on campus. You've ruined my life. My husband comes home from work now, turns on the evening news, and complains about government for the rest of the evening. You have ruined my life. (laughs) True story. Now, who was this guy? Did he sit in the front? Did he sit in the back? Did he have an A? Did he have a C? Did he ever ask a question or was he just a wallflower? I have absolutely no idea. But it shows you never know how you affect someone who you interact with, whether one-to-one or in a classroom or a social setting or in a conversation where another person never says anything, but something that you say rattles around in their brain and it leaves an impression. So it's important to become knowledgeable, articulate, patient, tolerant, and polite, and to know what you're talking about. And if enough of us do that in our own corners of life, at the end of the day, we'll win. Um, I know I'm beating a dead horse, but I can't help. Okay. (laughs) Imagine that it's 1883 and you're attending a funeral in London. And all the people around the gravesite are about a half a dozen people. And most of them are family members of the deceased. Who is this guy? Nobody comes out for his funeral. This must be a nobody who's going to be forgotten. That's Karl Marx. I mean, so this guy, an obscure guy being buried by his family members and Frederick Engels by there, who influenced at one level world politics more than Karl Marx in the 20th century? Okay? You never know who, what's going to, who, who, who's going to affect what. Right? So you never know. It just requires each of us to do what we can. So on, I, I usually I've asked all our guests this uh, closing question, uh, and it's about optimism, or whether you're optimistic about the future of liberalism. But from from your previous response and your tone, I, I would imagine that your answer would be a yes. Yes, I uh, I'm, I'm not optimistic about the short run. You know, Hayek wrote a famous essay called the intellectuals and socialism back in 1949. And he says that basically uh, uh, ideas influence intergenerationally. The politics of today are the result of the intellectual currents 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier. So, so, so current policies are, are a lagged response to the ideas of, of the past. So we're the product of all of these collectivist and interventionist and welfare statist ideas. Uh, That's what's going on, whether it be Republican, Democrat, left, right, that we see in our politics today. So, but there's one thing that's clear. All of these ideas have been shown to be hollow and ineffective and often disastrous, and especially in their extreme forms, disastrous to human life socialism in the 20th century, fascism in the 20th century, the failure of the interventionist welfare state 
uh, to end all the wars against poverty and illiteracy and everything else that LBJ promised in the 1960s. Uh, so so I, I think, well, in the short run, these policies will prevail if we can influence the climate of opinion over our own time and the next couple of decades, then they can have their impact at the end of the century. Now, if that seems like, but what about me? Do you have children? Do you have, or would you hope to have grandchildren someday? Do you want their life to be better than yours, both materially and in the social environment and political environment in which they live? Um, I have grandkids. Uh, I would hope that their their life that they live in and their life is going to be through most of the 21st century can be in various and sundry ways better than mine, uh, both materially as well as the political and social environment. So even if our own lifetime does not see many improvements because of this idea policy lag that Hayek talked about, we should be doing it because we're concerned with our children and grandchildren. And I'll make one other point about this. Even if it was unlikely that they would succeed, and here I speak for myself, I can do nothing else because I believe these ideas are right. And I can't allow myself to remain silent. Well, on that note, thank you very, very much, Professor Ebling. We really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak to us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here until we meet again. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.